Today we start what will be a six-week series, Love to Stay, Sex, Grace, and Commitment in Marriage. We will be uh, reflecting upon marriage itself, how to strengthen marriages, how to form marriages that will last a lifetime. We also lift up that we recognize not everyone is married, but there are aspects of this book that I think will be helpful to all of us as we reflect upon former marriages, as we plan for a marriage to come, and also in all of our long relationships, what are the habits and practices that help make that relationship last over time? I think you'll really enjoy this series. We've enjoyed putting it together. And I want to be clear that I'm sticking very closely to the book. So if you read chapter one, you'll read a lot of my sermon. So just don't want anyone to think I'm plagiarizing. I'm very grateful for Adam Hamilton's work. Our scripture for today comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 18, and again verses 21 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman. For out of man, this one was taken. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of God for all of us. Thanks be to God. I ask you please to pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God, thou our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Two older adults were in bed getting ready to fall asleep for the night, and the woman says to the man, you know, you used to lie close to me. And so the man, fine, kind of rolls in next to the woman. And then the woman says, you know, you, you used to hold my hand. And so he reaches out and takes her hand. And then the woman says, you know, you used to nibble on my ear. He pulls back the covers, jumps out of bed, and she says, what? What happened? And he says, I'm getting my dentures. <laughs> Time has passed. <laughs> this is such a beautiful example of marriage, how we do what we can to bless one another, to please one another, even at times when we don't feel like it. Uh, that is the depth of agape love. Today I want to reflect with you on what marriage is, why marriage is more than just a piece of paper, and uh, ways to think about marriage that might strengthen marriage and strengthen all our long-term relationships. Marriage, more than a piece of paper. We know that there have been tremendous changes over the last 50-plus years in American culture. People are marrying later, and they're less likely to marry at all. 
One of the statistics included in the book that really surprised me was the difference in the age of the first marriage. In 1960, most men married when they were about 22, maybe 22 and three months or 22 and part, but 22. And most women in 1960 had their first marriage when they were 20, so maybe 20 and a half, 20 and a month. But the first marriage, the man was 22, the woman was 20 in 1960. In 2011, the first marriage was when the man was 28 something and the woman 26 something for the for average first marriage. We are postponing marriage. In addition to postponing marriage, we are choosing not to marry at all. More and more of our couples are choosing to live together, to cohabitate. And it's interesting looking at the statistics for divorce and breaking up. The divorce rate, as we know, tragically just escalated in the United States in the 60s and 70s, and it peaked in the 80s when it reached about 50% of marriages would end in divorce. Interestingly, that number has gone down some from its peak in the 80s, and now the, the figures hover between 40% and 50% of marriages will end in divorce. But if you look at relationships where they live together, where they cohabitate but don't, aren't married, those marriages, 50% of them end, end within five years. So a higher rate of staying together in marriage than in living together. But is that a reason to get married? As Christians, we have a very specific theology of marriage. There's something we believe God is doing in marriage. And we hear that in Genesis. We hear that in other passages of the Bible. But I want to reflect with you on three particular aspects of it. Marriage to help, marriage to bless, and marriage as agape love. I read the passage from Genesis. If you read the part earlier than what I read, God wants a helper for Adam. And, and so there are these, you know, God brings these various animals and Adam's like, hmm, no, nope, nope, none of these. It's not right. So God says, I'm going to bring a helper, a suitable helper, and takes a rib out of Adam's side and makes Eve. And Adam sees this, this is my suitable helper. The term that is used in here in the Hebrew for help is ezer. And I think sometimes we get, we think about that help incorrectly. Sometimes we think of Ezer help as a servant or a slave or someone who is bossed around. The word Ezer, polar opposite of that. The word Ezer means strength, help from one who is stronger than the other. So when God is looking for a helper for Adam, God is looking for someone stronger than Adam, a helper, an Ezer. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that Eve is stronger than Adam in all things. What it means is marriage is made to be equal. The husband is Ezer, is stronger in some ways and helps out the wife. The wife is stronger in some ways and helps out the husband. They are to be Ezers, helpers for one another, each of them strong, helping out in different ways. And we see that in good marriages. Good marriages sort out who's going to do what. You don't both keep the books and both keep the calendar. Couples figure out who's better with the money. 
uh, you see these kind of dichotomies in a lot of marriages where one's great with money, the other one really struggles with it, or one is the detail person, the other person is the visionary, one of them is the practical one, the other one is more emotional. They are ezers for one another, they are helpers for one another, a kind of equality in mutual support. So we marry to help one another, to be companions who lighten the load for one another. In United Methodist theology and in traditional Christian theology, we believe that in baptism, people are given spiritual gifts, how God is going to work through that person for the saving of the world. We also believe that marriage is part of the baptismal covenant. This is one of those fun facts a lot of people don't realize. The services of the baptismal covenant are baptism, confirmation, church membership, marriage, and the funeral or the service of death and resurrection. These are all services streaming out of our baptism as beloved children of God. When we marry, we say to God, to the community gathered, this one. I choose this. This is the person with whom I can live out my baptismal calling. This is the person with whom I can be my fullest and richest self. If someone is not going to help you with what your calling is, that's the wrong person to marry. The person you marry is the one who can be your ezer as you live your full self. That's what we do in marriage. That sense of being aware of who can be the one that we live out our callings together. Now, that's not always easy. We may start out right here with parallel callings, and our callings may shift. Sometimes those callings shift in parallel ways, and we're always equally close. And isn't that a little bit easier? More often, our callings can, maybe one person's calling remains the same and this person's calling shifts over there, or maybe both of their callings shift and they grow in different ways. When that calling doesn't remain tidally parallel, it takes a lot of communication to stay together, to grow into what it means to be an ezer, a helper at this stage of the marriage what a gift it is to keep talking, to keep communicating, to get to know one another as our marriage shifts and grows and changes. It can get stronger even as the callings shift in different ways, sometimes away from each other. Ezer, the helper, one image of marriage. But another image of marriage is a blessing. People, when they marry, are called to bless one another, to do what is going to be helpful and comforting and supportive of the other person. Not just as a practical help or spiritual help, but a blessing so that when we are married, we need to be asking ourselves, how can I bless my spouse today? What can I do to encourage, to support, to make that person feel cherished? How do we bless one another? Now, this gets complicated because many of us have different images of what would feel like a blessing. And we'll look more at that in next week's, or next week is confirmation, but two weeks from today, we'll be looking more at how people's image of what a blessing is can be different. You may mean something as a blessing to me, and I may not be experiencing it as a blessing. Part of blessing one another is listening to what the other one truly needs. In our opening story of the older couple preparing for bed, the woman wanted to be blessed by his affection. 
And he made a decision to bless her, to respond to her request, to love her in that way. We are called to bless not only one another in the marriage, but also to bless other people. When I work with married couples in prepare and in the, um, in the preparation counseling sessions, I will ask them, what do you think God has called the two of you to do together? Now, some people are clear about that right away. Oh, we know. God has called us to have children together and to be a blessing to our church, or God has called us to be really rooted in this neighborhood and to be good neighbors and to strengthen the community where we live. Or we know God has called us to do this kind of thing together. It's beautiful. But I got to say it's pretty rare. Most couples give me this kind of glazed look like they've just failed the test, and I say, go home, talk about it. Come back next week you know, when we meet again. And it's interesting what kinds of things they come up with together. You know, we, we think we have a calling to do whatever it is. We have a calling to, to model an equal marriage. We have a calling to show that second marriages can work well. We have a calling to blend our families and to show that blended families can work well. What, whatever that is, we we've discerned this is our calling so that the marriage blesses one another, but it also faces outward to be a blessing to the community. And that's one of the reasons why marriage as a Christian event takes place in worship. There is a group of people to witness the vows, to promise, to support them, to be ezers to them when they're going through hard times, but also as they proclaim their desire to be a blessing to that community. That is the next layer of love, which makes marriage more than a piece of paper. But our third layer has to do with love and our understandings of love as we mature, as the years go on. And we look at the different terms for love in Greek. The first term for love that many of us are familiar with is eros. And eros is the, the source of the term erotic, erotic love, romantic love, sexual love. And erotic love is so important in marriage. It's that first thing for many of us, it's what first brought us together, that attraction, that desire to be near one another. And that erotic love keeps couples together throughout their lives. We will be focusing on erotic love in a number of weeks. It's really important. But that level of kind of breathy passion at the beginning doesn't always stay at the same fever pitch in which the relationship may have begun. I mentioned our premarital counseling. We use an inventory called Prepare out of Minnesota, and there are different statements which people are supposed to score, strongly agree, strongly disagree, or someplace in the middle. One of the ones that almost all of our couples miss by what the inventory wants you to say is this. I expect our romantic love to fade somewhat. Now, I will tell you that almost always my lovely, passionate, committed couples look at that and they mark strongly disagree. I know that happens to other couples, but that's not going to happen to strongly disagree. They are loyal. They love their fiancé. That's not going to happen. And the inventory wants them to say, agree. At some point, that's going to happen. So that's the point in my premarital counseling in which I get to be the wet blanket. And I say to them, now, maybe this will never happen to you. 
But it is likely, a few years down the road, maybe there are children in your marriage, give an example, doing a little sexist stereotyping here, but for example, maybe the husband has gone off to work all day, he's had a, a fulfilling day, it's been tiring, but it's also been energizing in certain ways, and the woman has st stayed home. Let's say she's breastfeeding, and the baby's been sick, so she's been breastfeeding, but the baby's also been vomiting on her throughout the day. Yeah. And we get to the end of the day, and the husband would like some romantic expression. And the wife is like, ugh, get off me. Like, ugh, I've had this baby on my body. I've been nursing. I've been spat up on. The last thing I want is touch. Ugh. Now, does that mean she doesn't love him anymore? No. But at that moment, the romantic love has faded somewhat. <laughs> so, so when we're talking about that in premarital couples, I will say, so if that happens to you, don't worry about it. It happens to a lot of people. So what you do is you figure out, okay, maybe now isn't a good time. <laughs> but then you make sure you have a time where now is going to be a good time. My parents, throughout their marriage, in the early years, always went out on Saturday nights. It was very important to them that they maintain their marriage and not just become co-parents. And they modeled for me that commitment of, before we were your parents, we loved each other. And I have been blessed by being raised by parents who never stopped loving each other and taking couple time. That's part of how you keep that erotic love awake and alive, knowing that there are going to be times you don't feel like it, but you can set aside times where romantic expression is more possible. That erotic love, really important. But erotic love alone isn't enough to sustain a marriage. Because there are seasons where you don't feel like it, because there are seasons of illness, because there are seasons of stress and perhaps travel apart from one another, it, if that's all you have, you're going to founder on the rocks. Really important, but can't be the only basis of love in the marriage. You also need agape love. Agape love is that selfless love, that unconditional love, that love that does what the other needs without thinking primarily of oneself. Now, Let's be clear, agape love is hard. Most of us are selfish beings. We think first of ourself and our own needs. The gentleman in the opening story just wanted to go to sleep, <laughs> but he had pledged agape love to his wife, and so he got over his initial desire just to go to sleep, and he gave affection to his wife. He got over it and offered that agape love. We see that evidence of agape love in long marriages which know each other and are still getting to know one another, that, that recognize that you don't know everything even as long as a marriage is. I picked on my mom at the 8 o'clock service. Now she's not here. But I remember about 10 years ago visiting my parents in Naperville, and somehow in a conversation it came up that my dad had had pneumonia as a child. My mom said, what? <laughs> I didn't know you'd had pneumonia. And dad laughs and says, Mary, you don't know everything about me. <laughs> somehow it had never come up that dad had had pneumonia as a child. And after, at that point, they were, they'd been married 50-some years. Now they're coming up on 62. There's still things about my dad my mom doesn't know. There's still things about my mom my dad doesn't know. There are still things to learn about one another. 
And we learn those things as we live in agape love, that unconditional love, seeking to bless and help one another, seeking to do what's best for the other, even when it's really difficult and even when we don't feel like it. Because we all know that sometimes we're just not going to feel like it and we have to kind of make ourselves, extend ourselves beyond our own selfish desires. Adam Hamilton closes the chapter, and I close with this story as well, with a beautiful example of agape love that he witnessed relatively early on. Uh, we've mentioned Adam Hamilton's church, United Methodist Church of the Resurrection. It is now our largest congregation in United Methodism, but it wasn't always like that. It started out as a very small group of committed Christians who worshiped in a funeral home. Turns out funeral homes are available Sunday mornings. <laughs> Not many people have funerals at that time, and so they could go into one of the funeral home chapel areas to worship, and it's because of this funeral home start that they took the name Church of the Resurrection. So there's, now you're insiders on a joke. But early on within that time of getting to know one another and growing as a congregation, some of, one of the real leading families in that was a couple, John and Denise, and their two elementary school kids. They were just wonderful pillars of the early church. They were go-to people to help you out. If you needed someone to set up more chairs or to greet or whatever, you could grab John and Denise and their kids. Now, Adam knew that earlier, before he'd met them, there had been a brain tumor Denise had had, and um, she had been able to have it treated, and the cancer was in remission, and she was doing fine. And years passed. They really enjoy their time together. The Church of the Resurrection is growing. And then John and Denise received devastating news that the tumor was back, that it was cancerous, and it was inoperable. There was nothing they could do. John and, John and Denise came from the area of Columbus, Missouri, and so the Church of the Resurrection is outside Kansas City. So they made a decision to move over to Columbia, Missouri, to be nearer to family. And there they started their life over, knowing, not knowing how long Denise would have, but knowing that eventually the cancerous tumor would take her life. Years passed. She lived quite a while. And then Adam received that awful phone call that he knew eventually he was going to get, and he drew the, drove the hours from Kansas City area to Columbus, Missouri. He got to the house and rang the doorbell, and he could hear John call down, Adam, it's unlocked. Come on in. So Adam went inside, and John was upstairs. He was bathing his beloved wife, Denise, and putting her makeup on, getting her all pretty. Then he very lovingly and carefully carried her down the stairs. He placed her in a seat at their family table, and then John made bologna sandwiches for Denise and for Adam and for himself, and they continued to talk, and he gave Denise mouthfuls of the sandwich and, and wiped her mouth very tenderly. Denise, at that point, was not very mentally alert. She kind of looked around. It, it's possible that maybe she recognized Adam, but it's also possible that she didn't. She was not able to be very present because of the progress of the tumor. And um, Adam watched all this and was in awe. At the end of their time together, they had a prayer together, giving thanks for Denise's life and offering Denise back to God. 
And Adam writes in the book that he got back in his car and just bawled, <laughs> just thinking about what John and Denise had been in that early years of Church of the Resurrection and marveling at the agape love that he had witnessed. John and Denise, still a relatively young couple um, who vowed to be married for, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. And sickness had come, and John was faithful. That is the agape love to which we are called. It is the agape love that Jesus modeled for us as he loved his followers. As at times he was driven nuts by his followers. Are there those passages in the Gospels in which Jesus says, oh, how long do I have to be with this faithless generation? You know, we drove him crazy sometimes. I'm sure we still do. <laughs> but Jesus' love never stopped. Jesus' love continued. And he loved them. He loved his own. He loved them up to his suffering and torture. He loved them up through his death. That is agape love, selfless love that offers love and offers oneself for the other. And he offered that love as he was raised from the dead and appeared in the resurrection life, calling each of us to be his disciples and to share the good news of God's love everywhere. Agape love is the bedrock of a Christian marriage, that love for the other which helps and blesses and extends oneself so that we can be a blessing to all people. Thanks be to God. Amen.